it's December 6, 2018. This is Acacia Thompson for Brooklyn Public Library's Greenpoint Oral History Project for Our Streets, Our Stories. I'm on Box Street in Greenpoint, Brooklyn with Emily Gallagher. Emily's a writer and a social justice community activist. Hi, Emily. Hi. So, Emily, how long have you been in Greenpoint? I have been in Greenpoint since 2006, and it's 2018 now, so... Quick math, <laughs> math. I can't remember. Uh, yeah, over you know, like almost years. fifteen years. 15 years. Yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. And so, how how did you get involved in community activism and uh, organizing? So, um, in some ways, I got involved in community activism because of Greenpoint. Um, I moved here because I was coming to New York to work in art. I had worked in. Um, I had gone to school for art history, and I had a friend whose sister worked at an art gallery, and she got me, like, an internship there, <laughs> a paid internship, which, you know, is, like, a um, diamond in the rough in New York. So I was working, like, four jobs. Two of them were internships. One was paid, one wasn't. Then I was working at the New York Observer, um, and like as somebody's you know assistant and then I was also working um where else was I working oh I can't remember I had a lot of jobs going on um and I had the opportunity to help out at a, a art gallery that was here in well in Williamsburg and I also had my best one of my best friends from college was living here in Greenpoint And when I would come to Greenpoint and walk around, it really felt like a community. And what I would see was small local businesses, people talking to each other on the street, like a level of connection and community. And I was also seeing that in Williamsburg at that point too. Um, And there was just this level of knowingness that people had that I hadn't experienced in any of the other places I was going. And I was sleeping on my friend's floor in Queens, and the section of Queens that she was in had a lot of of very tall high-rises. And I think, you know, now that I have been in New York longer, I realize that there were a number of ethnic communities in that neighborhood that I just wasn't a part of. But when I would go out into the world, I just really didn't see a lot of opportunities to connect with people. They're, the only places I could find that were like social spaces were a Dunkin' Donuts and a strip club. So every day that I would come over here, I just felt like full and happy. And um, then my, my best friend Cheryl um, told me that she was going to move and she just was moving down the street. <laughs> so she asked me if I wanted to take over her room on Callier Street and I jumped at the opportunity and I remember we had to do this like fly-by-night midnight switch so that the landlord wouldn't raise the rent where I just kind of moved into her spot overnight while she moved out and then her roommate didn't tell the landlord at first that a new person was living there. So then then I lived here and um, I, uh, oh yeah. Yeah, yeah, I know. Yeah, I figured. Um, it's always that that always happens right when it's going on. Um, so then I remember 
you know, I was living here, but it had taken me months to save the $600 that I needed for the apartment, um, which is hilarious now, <laughs> but, um, cause it's so much more expensive now, but, um, you know, then I, I was still pretty tight with resources. So my roommate had found a bike in the garbage and I, he said, if you want to take this bike, um, you can go and get it fixed up. And so I went and got a new tire on it. And I just started using that as my main transportation riding around. And I would start to find that there were all these different pockets of the neighborhood that, you know, nobody like me was really going, which were all the industrial pockets. And it was just really funny because if I just rode down Callier Street past McGinnis, and turned left, all of a sudden there was the sewage treatment plant and the, the metal um, recycling facilities. And, and it was so shocking to, to stumble upon that that I, I, I started thinking, like, oh, there's a lot more going on here than I realized. Uh, meanwhile, um, this is a very long version of how I got into activism, but I think it'll be fine. Um, meanwhile, I... Um, I was very, I had in this time gotten another job that was also part-time working for the American patrons of Tate Modern. And I was very attracted to the job because I was like, oh, a prestigious art museum. But as I went in there, you know, being a young, inexperienced person, I didn't really understand what the job was going to be. And I was the assistant to the people who were in charge of development. So mostly what I was doing was tracking donations and also um, like going, this was in 2006, remember, so going to like the mansions of like Bear Stearns people and um, the Rothschilds and people like that to try to get them to write into their will that they wanted their artwork to go to the Tate Modern instead of to a New York art gallery. And I remember as I was going through, starting to just hate art and starting to feel like this wasn't what I thought art was supposed to be. Um, Because for me, art was, my favorite art classes had been a feminist art history class and a, a Latino arts class. And both of those were about using art to communicate resistance and using art to share the stories of communities that otherwise might not have a platform to share them and to amplify experiences and cultures and, you know, explore those things. And what I was seeing there was really a very capitalist exchange of um, cash because the reason why people would put this in their will was so that they didn't have to pay certain taxes on it. Um, and so the more I thought about it, the more yucky I felt, and the less and less I realized that I fit in in this workplace. And I actually remember one time the my boss um, asked me why the heck I was living in Greenpoint. And I got very defensive, and I said, you know, a lot of artists live in Greenpoint. And she was like, oh... Well, when you're ready to move to real New York, blah, 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 blah. And the most famous thing that she said to me 
in my mind was one time I was wearing these vintage high heels. Everything was vintage, aka from the thrift store, because it was all that I could afford that would fit like the dress code. And um, I was wearing these heels and they broke. And I remember asking her where I could get my shoe repaired. And she said, oh, I know places, but you couldn't afford them. It's like, really? I, if I can't afford them, that's your fault because you're the one who's paying me, right? So anyway, I was feeling more and more like I had to get away from this place. And my dad was on and off sick in Rochester, where I'm from. And I went to visit him in the hospital and my mom and I were sitting in like the room that they have that's not the hospital room to wait. And we struck up a conversation with this other woman in there and she worked at iBeam Atelier here in New York and she goes, and I just gushed out all of the things and she said, oh, there are activist artists there. You should go work for them. So I just wrote this desperate letter to Steve Lambert who was an iBeam fellow at that time um, who was doing like anti-capitalist art. And I was like, please save me. <laughs> and he said, why don't you come work for me and I'll pay you what they're paying you to be my assistant, which was, I think, $12 an hour. So I went there and then I met all these environmental artists, including Brooke Singer, who was doing a project about Superfund sites. So I became her researcher and I discovered that half of the places that we were going to talk about were either in this neighborhood or adjacent to it. And then, um, I guess, um, that's how I really started to become interested in the environmental piece, which led me to the other pieces. Right. And so how did that lead you to becoming on the NAG board, Neighbors Allied for Good Growth? You were a co-chair on yeah. the board. So how did you come to that? So, um, so working with Brooke, uh, I started to realize all of the issues that were happening here. And it was, at this point, 2007, so now I've been here a year. It's funny because that year feels like it was like 10 years. And in terms of growth, I suppose it was. And um, I, I was reading about all of these things and, and becoming distressed about them and just also being shocked and then having a lot of cognitive dissonance where... I remember sitting in my living room and looking out the window and thinking, wow, like all of this stuff is right outside the window and no one even knows. And um, and I mean, I, it turns out I was very wrong about no one even knowing because then I discovered this huge community of people who well knew and had spent their lives working on it. Um, and so then I started to look for a way. I My conscience just was kicking in. And my mother's kind of mantra when I was growing up was that if I didn't like something, I should do something about it. And what she would always say was, you know, I would be, we'd watch the news or something and I would be like, that's not right. Or even something in school would happen. And she would say, if you don't like it, you should write a letter to the editor of the newspaper and put your ideas out there. So, you know, I had this in my mind that it was my responsibility that if I didn't like something, I should get involved. But I also knew that I didn't really know what was going on. So um, I just started searching online for environmental organizations in the neighborhood. And I was like, I'm just going to go. I'm just going to learn more about what's going on. And I was imagining these great, enormous nonprofits where I was going to have to go through all these gatekeepers. And I found NAG and I found where their office was. And at that point, it was on 
um, Kent in in the building that now has the coffee shop in it. And I remember reading up about them and I was like, I'm going to go there. And I walked over and I rang the doorbell and I got buzzed in and there was a guy sitting there in like a, like a, a hat that was like one of those like, um, like news, newsboy hats. And he was older and he had little glasses on and he's, he was so excited to see me. And I had just not experienced anything like that in my New York world yet. Um, and I, I said, hi, I, I want to become a volunteer here. And, and he just said, great, well, I'm the executive director and I'd love to have you. And then trying to figure out what I could work on. And it was Peter Gillespie who was like the founder of, well, one of the founders of NAG. And I just remember being floored that I walked in and he was sitting there. And I, in my mind, he was some behemoth. But in reality, he was just like a normal person who was right there. And then, um, and then Michael Friedman Schnapp was the, the um, organizer at that point. And, and he was like trying to make a new model for how they were doing the organizing to kind of get people who were psyched about Obama's run for office um, in there. Um, well, because this was 2007, so it was leading up and there was a lot of the pre-election frenzy. So, um, yeah, and, and preserving Domino was one of the big fights at that point and trying to prevent that from becoming a development site. Um, so yeah, so then I got in there and then the more I had all these ideas and every single one that I pitched to them, they were like, yeah, let's do it. And they would show up and it was, um, Peter, Michelle, um, Michelle Rodiker and Jim Rodiker, um, Susan Albrecht, uh, Felice Kirby. Um, I think Ward Dennis was coming in around the same time. Uh, and it was just really funny because it was such a difference between the organizations where I had been working that were in the art world where everything was so formal. And so, I mean, not iBeam, but even iBeam was more formal than this was. And this where it was like, people were just ecstatic that you were there and wanted to do something. So any idea I had, they were like into it. So... I remember one of the first things I did was I was reading about guerrilla gardening in, um, in London. And I was like, I want to do guerrilla gardening here on some of the, the development sites or the, the open sites. And so they're like, great, like, you know, let's do it. And then I think I paid for everything myself, which is funny since I was, you know, so broke. But um, we did it. And then all of a sudden, I like put an ad up on, like, was it MySpace then? I don't remember. But a ton of people came out. It was a very activated time. It was kind of like this time in history where everybody was participating and then everybody went away again. But everybody was participating and like 20 or 30 people came to this event that we did. And then NPR, like all things considered, called us up. And I was just like, oh, this is easy. And of course, it was never that easy again. Um, but I just really got momentum with that. And I felt like I had a lot of mentorship there, that I was really a part of this community that I had been welcomed into. And I had not had the experience 
in New York City of of being treated in the way like not only was I appreciated but I was really welcome and that I could become a leader right away and I just was really moved by that and it made me just begin to feel like that was where I belonged and then my connection to NAG really connected me to the neighborhood long term um, I got fired from the Tate job. <laughs> no big surprise there. Um, but when I got fired, uh, Cheryl said, why don't you try working in the neighborhood for a little while? I bet you would really like that. And it would deepen everything. Because Cheryl, to this day, is the coffee buyer for Cafe Grumpy. So she travels around the world, but it's really based here in the neighborhood. So um, I got a job at a clothing store that I just opened called Alter. And um, I started working there, and I just loved getting to know all the neighbors, and I just became like a neighborhood person. And what I loved the most about working there was that the owners were aware of the role that they were playing in the neighborhood, and they didn't take it lightly. So they, they were very connected to the people who lived in the buildings that they were opening the store in. They, they had real relationships with the neighbors. Um, and we ended up knowing everybody on that block between Greenpoint and Milton on Franklin Street. And we watched it change. You know, I remember um, there was a building that was next to ours that was, I think, a Section 8 building. And one of the guys that lived on the ground floor was always giving us his giving one of the owners his leather gear <laughs> because he had been like a, a leather daddy and then he had um he got very sick I believe he had HIV and I remember I actually saw him like when he was leaving to go in the ambulance and he ended up dying but he like reached out and like took my hand and said I'll be back <laughs> and it was just like to have that relationship with people just made me realize like that is what living in a city should be you know like really bonding and knowing your neighbors and your neighbors are from all over the place I'm still really good friends with Manuel who lives above altar or what used to be altar and he would come down and tell me about his problems with the landlord and I, I started being like well you know we just got a grant for a tenant organizer at NAG you should come and then he got really activated and he joined NAG and then now he's like a big activist in the neighborhood and and it was just a really cool kind of funny situation where I was the gentrifier um, but I like I had gotten in so deep and so into the neighborhood that um, I was telling the long-term resident about the activist group you know uh, so it was like he he and I became tight you know, we're still, we have real fondness for each other. And it was just, like, incredible. So, yeah, so that's a, so then, um, then we kind of had some turnover in the board at NAG. The people who had been the chairs, which were Michael and Susan, they had said, after two years, we're not going to be the chair anymore. And then there was, like, a vacuum, and we didn't know who was going to be the chair. And then um, I, I remember lying in bed it's funny now looking back how how seriously I took it all you know because now it's been a part of my life for so long that now it's like I guess it's like a relationship people have with their family where they're like oh this is a crisis for now but it's not a crisis forever you know um but for me those those little crises were like 
oh my God, everything could fall apart if this doesn't get fixed. So I remember staying up all night one night worrying and then I was like, I have to apply. Like that old adage from my mom, I have to try to be the chair. So I wrote a letter and I was like, I don't think I have the experience to do this, but you know that I care. So like, let's do this. So they paired Ward and I, because Ward is professionally like involved in a lot of, he, um, you know, and he was teaching at Columbia and um, he does uh, tax credits for historic preservation and he just had a lot of knowledge that I didn't have. And we were linked up and at first I was like, you know, he, he's a lot more calm and quiet than I am. <laughs> so, um, so at first I was like, wow, how's this going to work? But it ended up being perfect. And we worked together in that role for like from 2007 to 2000, like just last year I stepped down because I was like, I need to, I thought that there, like a fresh perspective would, would be welcome and necessary. And also, I wanted to go to grad school. So, right. Well, so you've been writing a lot for the Greenpoint Star. Yeah, right? yeah. And so you've written about some environmental issues in the mm-hmm. neighborhood. I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about some of those those issues. Yeah, the environmental issues. Hmm. Well, you know, the one that has been most on my mind. So I would, I guess, I would say that, you know, there are two things that. I really think about when it comes to the environmental issues. There's the the long-standing ones that are not necessarily going to be solved, but awareness is really important. And um, one of my big concerns with a lot of the older issues is that the knowledge of them will be lost because they are mostly industrial. Um, industrial connected um, from the prior uses of the land that's up here. So as we eliminate those industrial buildings, it might erase visually the, the legacy to production here, but the legacy, the toxic legacy is still deeply in the ground. Um, so <clears throat> around around here <laughs> there's um there's there's so many different kinds of toxic plumes in this neighborhood under the ground that um that are very much we have everything from brownfield status which is you know like um the government is recognizing that an area is is toxic and then you know that you have to clean it up to state superfund which means that there, there's going to need to be a lawsuit at the state level um, because the level of, of contamination is so high that, that no, no one except the, the person who's putting, who had, who's the responsible party um, should be responsible for that. Um, and then there's the federal Superfund site. So a lot of people know about the oil, which was actually um, seepage, um, I found out when I was doing research, I was telling you earlier that I'm in an environmental policy class right now, that one of the terms for the, the underground seepage is, the acronym is LUST, which I just thought was so amazing. <laughs> Toxic LUST. Um, but so, yeah, so we have the New Heart Building not far from here. That one's kind of the one that we've been talking about lately because of the redevelopment. 
Um, but that has plumes um, that are left from the plastics industry. So um, to make plastic pliable and this neighborhood, you know, one of the things that I think is kind of funny is as a lot of the single family homes near my apartment are being purchased, one of the first things people are doing is taking off the vinyl siding and repointing the brick and, and making it look like very, like it looks like a different neighborhood. And I was walking around the other day and I was trying to explain it to a visitor and I was like, well, you know, like the vinyl siding, not only was it a way to like preserve the buildings with if you didn't have the finances to totally redo the building, but also it was like made in this neighborhood. I don't know if the siding per se was, but vinyl factories were a big part of this neighborhood's history. So I can almost imagine, and of course I don't know, but I can imagine people thinking, oh, you know, we want to have this vinyl on the building because that was made by this company that we're affiliated with and that, you know, my husband or wife works at. So, yeah, so the vinyl is like so much more than a way to cover your building. It actually was like a whole, a whole life here in the neighborhood. So even making, so vinyl shower curtains and all those things, they need um, softeners called phthalates that are also um, rep, um, they're, they're hormone disruptors. And they're gooey, so they move around in the ground. They don't just stay put. Like a lot of the other plumes that we have in the neighborhood are perk plumes, which are gaseous, and those come from dry cleaning industry. Um, <clears throat> and so... They move around too, but they move around in a different way. So it's kind of, it's kind of cool. And if if you want to detach the the human impact from this, um, that we have all these secret like plumes and the earth moving around and like like under our feet, the environment's ever changing um, in Greenpoint. And in part, it's because the ground itself was once like, you know, we still have Newtown Creek, which is a uh, um, an estuary, but this whole area was, um, was historically a network of creeks and tributaries that were for the movement of water. So the fact that we paved over those and then started pumping chemicals into the ground they're moving around in the same way that that water would have moved around, right? So we, we've made a real kind of toxic um, sludge under the ground here. So that's, that's a whole issue is like monitoring the, the plumes and then thinking about responsible development. And I remember one time getting really frustrated and writing about this and I was like, of course, you know, thinking about like, how can developers do this responsibly? And I just realized like, there's no way a developer can do this responsibly. The responsible thing would be to not develop on this land, period. But that's not how the city works. And one of the things that's really been, you know, walking around this, what I think about all day, all these little issues. <laughs> and I've just been really twisting on one lately, which is that de Blasio really wants to be seen as this super progressive person but when it comes to development it's like he just can't resist he just can't resist giving in to that um that that money and that thing and i know that we need 
to to house all the people that want to live in New York City, we need higher density housing. But there are just some places that, you know, um, that shouldn't be redeveloped. And those are industrial sites of toxic industries. But yet, you know, there's this erasure that's happening and, and it's it's disturbing. But once you realize how capitalism really works, then you just have to really commit to learning about where you're going to live. Um, so that's one whole issue. And then the other issue that I've been thinking a lot about and that I'm actually in, I'm in policy school right now and I'm writing about this for my paper is the combined sewage overflow, also known as CSO. And this is, you know, I was interviewing a friend of mine that works at DEP and she was saying that, um, you know, well, first I should say combined sewage overflow is that um, the sewer pipelines that were mostly built through the city, about 60% of the pipelines in the city, um, contain simultaneously the industrial waste, the household waste, and the stormwater. And there's something in the pipe called a weir wall, um, and that is like a divider, and it allows for... So it's a short divider. So it's almost like a cubicle style wall where it doesn't go all the way up. It just goes up to a certain level. So when um, when the stormwater um, is too voluminous, it will push all of that water up and it will go over the wall and it will spill into one of the waterways. And this was created so that the, the pipes didn't you know, burst or overflow into people's homes or into the street. <clears throat> At least that's my interpretation of it. I'm not 100% accurate on that one. But um, that means that every time we have a heavy storm, um, we're dumping the industrial and household waste into the waterway too because it's all mixed up together. So one of the things that my friend from DEP was saying, um, and she is – she is very um, specific and very concerned with being accurate. So if I get this wrong, I'm sorry, Erica. <laughs> I know that you didn't get it wrong. It was me getting it wrong. But um, she was telling me that one of the big problems in terms of development in CSO is that the neighborhoods that now we're developing for the first time these massive buildings in, <clears throat> like Long Island City, I'm assuming, um, that mostly had low-rise structures and industrial structures. Now when we build high-rises there, um, that those pipes are actually some of the oldest pipes under the ground. So those are just not at the capacity um, to handle that level of water. So a lot of these pipes need upgrades. And I know that Willis Elkins was telling me that they've been working with Long Island City and all these other organizations to try to upgrade those pipes to begin with before there started being all this development there. So, and slated development. So there's just a lot of these, and I think this is one of the things that moves me the most about environmentalism in the city, is when you're an environmentalist in um, the wilderness or in the countryside, you know, there's this feeling of land that is like, you know, a very 
specific kind of, of environment that we connect to this issue of environment. But the urban environment is still an environment. And the urban environment makes invisible all of its, all of its functionalities. And so it's very easy to walk around an urban environment and not notice what is actually an environmental issue. And we might see it in fits and starts, like after a rainstorm when all the sewers are flooded and um, they just can't drain. Um, this is also one of the reasons why the CSO is an emergency issue because of the resilience aspect. Um, <clears throat> with global warming, this neighborhood is going to have more CSO problems. Um, and Erica was telling me that the sewers probably aren't even going to be able to drain in the same way if we get to a certain level of flooding. Um, so these whole systems are so critical to the basic functioning of the city. They are so invisible to us and they are so impacted by us. So when, when we don't know about them and we don't pay attention to them, um, we don't realize that we ourselves could be mitigating the situation. And the big thing that I've learned studying CSOs is that um, the number one thing that you can do to fix it is to decrease the volume of water going into it, which is actually quite simple. All we need is um, more green infrastructure, more permeable pavement, um, more um, vegetation to soak up um, the, the water when it falls. If we can soak up most of the rainfall, then we're not gonna have as big of an issue. Also, if we used more gray water systems and buildings, um, which recycles water, so like when you flush the toilet, that water would be used again to do some other non-drinking function. Like we don't need to use potable water for every function that we use water for, um, but we do, and if we, mandated people installing gray water systems into new developments, that would make a big impact on how much water we're putting into the system. So I think it's a really exciting field to think about how city um, officials and state officials could dramatically change our ability to survive climate change and to survive um, just this development. It's, it, it's a very interesting piece of the activism puzzle because I think we feel less emotional about urban environments. We feel emotional about development. We feel emotional about like um, like small business changeover. You know, when it's like people related, we feel very emotional. But I think there's a real detachment when it comes to um, environmental, urban environmentalism and emotion. And, and that is one of the things, you know, it's like only when you connect it to, oh, if you live near phthalates, you could end up accidentally, accidentally, accidentally with cancer or something like that. When you connect it to the human scale, um, then people get upset, but they get upset in a very different way than they get upset about like, um, you know, their pandas going extinct or something like that. So it's kind of an interesting issue to get people um, to be passionate about. Yeah. 
And so um, what's next in, in Greenpoint? Do you feel like it's changed much environmentally since you've been here? I mean, do you feel like it's gotten better or how has it changed? I mean, it's it's a blip, how right. long, you know, but yeah. since you've been here, what have you seen change? Well, one of the things that really changed my life and inspired me to the point of like, even me going to get this degree is this neighborhood when I remember one time I was talking to somebody who was he oh it was like a man I had a crush on <laughs> and he was a lawyer and he had worked for the the DEC this was many years ago and I told him that I lived in Greenpoint and he said oh and his eyes widened and I said what and I thought he was gonna say the same kind of thing that my old boss used to say of like why do you live there or whatever um and he said everyone in new york city is scared of greenpoint activists and i said oh and i said what do you mean by that and he goes the women that organized around newtown creek never gave up and they never took no for an answer and they would get in your face if you, um, if you didn't, didn't do what they said and they were not polite or well-behaved. Are you talking about the concerned citizens? Yes. Yes, I am. And, um, specifically, I think he was talking about like, and I have never met her personally, but I live in admiration of like Irene Klementovitz, um, because he was just like, he's like, you, there's a lot. He's like, if you want to be an activist, there's a lot you can learn in Greenpoint. So their efforts of relentlessness um, to change the status of Newtown Creek to a federal Superfund, to get a settlement from Exxon. And I remember when they got the settlement, I can't remember how many millions of dollars it was, but, you know, it's like, it's a decent amount of money. I remember one of the activists saying, that's not even what we're owed. <laughs> and I was just like, as someone who, you know, was for so much of my young adulthood, polite to a fault, I think now, um, I was just like, what? Like, you know, you're not going to be like, oh, thank you for the million dollars. And I'm realizing like that is what it takes. And that is what these amazing people in this neighborhood have been all about. It's like community and support for each other. But when it comes to fighting the authorities, relentlessness, dogged pursuit, and, and not, not thinking that they're our friends, you know? They are someone that we need to collaborate with, but they are not necessarily the people who they're doing less they're never going to be doing us a favor, right? They have things to protect and we need to get them back from them because it's what we're owed. So I think like this, this is really what I've learned. And because I've lived here in this moment, I have seen the efforts of 30 years of work come to fruition. And, you know, with with the the settlement and with what ended up being the the community fund um and you know people i think sometimes people go to vote in those things and they don't even get the weight 
of what they're voting on, you know. So some of the projects are, like, essential and really important and cool, and some of the projects are, like, cute and nice, and it's, like, almost like, how dare you propose something nice with this money, right? Like, this is money that literally was blood from a stone, you know, that the neighborhood women who are everyday women, family people, you know, community members, they wrung that blood out of that stone, you know? So if there's something that's changed, it's that, you know, we've started to have success. And I don't take lightly that I am getting to be the beneficiary of so much hard work. And that's one thing that I think about a lot is how do we honor the people who did this work? Um, Also, people like Debbie Masters, who ended up leaving the city entirely because she got displaced from her loft space, but she did so much important work around um, toxics being used in Williamsburg. Um, There's so many people who we owe this neighborhood to who are never going to get to experience the, um, the, the benefits of it. And, and that's the irony of, of being an activist is a lot of times you're not even going to see what you've wrought, you know, and you're certainly not necessarily going to get to appreciate it. So I think it's really important for us in Greenpoint to really honor those people who we may never meet, um, who fought for this neighborhood when it was not being ranked as like the cool place to be, but it actually had, you know, snowfall of like incinerator waste, you know, and other kinds of, you know, they had the sludge tanks that stunk all day and all of that sort of thing. You know, there's so much of this neighborhood endured and now we're we're starting to see it cleaned up. So that there's that. It's like we have to find a way to honor these people and make it known that they busted their ass to make this happen. But on the other side too, we're not finished. And now we have a new problem, which is that I really think, whenever I say stuff like this, I can't tell if I sound super intelligent or like I'm a conspiracy theorist, but there is so much incentive to hide what's actually going on in Greenpoint now, like in terms of environment, like the need for environmental upgrade. And because we've turned around like the real estate market here and because we're like now always being referenced as like a cool place or a sexy place to be, like there is so much incentive to not be open about the problems that we still have. And I think our job now as activists is to continually rip the stitching open and say, no, this neighborhood's not clean yet. No, if you want to build here, it's your responsibility to clean it up. There's so much that we still need to do in terms of the creek, in terms of the sewer system, in terms of cleaning up these plumes in a real way and not just in a passable way. Um, That, you know, I, I do worry that you know, as as the activists pass, burn out, or are displaced, um, that, you know, we have to bring in new people. And I think sometimes that can be challenging because there's just different worldviews sometimes with with the 
expectations that you're bringing with you. I know I brought different expectations into my life in Greenpoint than the people that I met who were my neighbors. Um, and I think, you know, to to build a community where we're all working together to get these things fixed um, and we're all really appreciating the work that we've all done together, um, that's going to be the challenge of this next era of Greenpoint. Thank you for all the work that you've done in our neighborhood. Thank and you. And thanks for talking to me today. Yeah, my pleasure.